Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The unionist community has long since lost its ethnic supremacy and it is never coming back. That's a quote from Aaron Edwards' new book, A People Under Siege. He says those arguing for a new Ireland fail to grasp that unionists won't be moved, not now, not ever. He says loyalists harbour deep suspicions that if Irish unity happened, Northern Ireland would more closely resemble Bosnia in the 1990s than Hong Kong in the 2020s. In this episode of The Bell Tell, I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Edwards to discuss the history of unionism, the mistakes unionist leaders have made, and where Northern Ireland is going. Aaron, thank you very much for coming in. You're very welcome to The Bell Tell. This book is essentially a history of Ulster unionism with some analysis of where it might be headed and where you think it potentially should be headed. But before we get into the book, let's talk a bit about who you are and where you come from. You were born in Rathcool. Uh, you've written multiple books. Uh, tell me how many. Uh, several, almost a dozen. That's a lot. Uh, they're there are several of these on loyalist paramilitarism, in particular on British agents during the Troubles. You now lecture at Sandhurst, the British Military Academy for Officer Training, where you are a subject matter expert on the Northern Ireland conflict, conflict management and counterterrorism. How did you come to write this book? What in your background led you to want to write the history, if you like, of unionism and explore where it's going? Well, I've been writing about unionism and loyalism for quite some time uh, in a piecemeal fashion uh, through newspaper articles, uh, you know, academic work um, of a variety of, of kinds. And uh, I hadn't actually put together a book that was cohesive and coherent on unionism uh, and uh, encompassing loyalism and explaining, you know, how that had developed since partition. You say quite early in the book that from the earliest days of Northern Ireland, after the island of Ireland was partitioned in 1921, unionists tied to the governing party were acutely aware of the need to keep their constituents in the constant grip of a fear that their position as be, was being constantly undermined by a range of opponents. 
How enduring is that mindset more than 100 years after Northern Ireland was created? I think that it endures. The uh, central themes in the book are about that political anxiety and political insecurity that hits people in terms of being a community or having a view of themselves as a, as a coherent, a cohesive community. But of course, the reality, the historical reality uh, then and the present reality now is that that community is not cohesive, not coherent uh, and is very diverse. Uh, and so in order to uh, keep uh, Northern Ireland essentially together um, and to stop uh, it uh, fragmenting, uh, the Unionist government decided in the old uh, uh, Belfast Parliament to uh, pander essentially to the Protestant community rather than necessarily uh, those who we have, would have described themselves as Catholic nationalists or other. Uh, and uh, and of course there were other uh, people there, uh, socialists uh, and trade unionists who would have been some of them uh, pro-union, but definitely not of the same uh, political complexion of those in the unionist party. And and so really the, uh, the enduring mindset of political uh, insecurity comes through and is one of the central themes, as I've said, uh, that brings the story right up to the present day and the fallout over the Northern Ireland Protocol. I was struck by a quote in the book from Sir James Craig, the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland and later Lord Craig Avon, uh, which I'd never seen before. And this is a quote from 1939, um, the year that the Second World War um, breaks out, obviously. And he sent this very defiant message to Eamon de Valera in the in the uh, south of Ireland, as it then was, a um, a message to, um, to keep their hands off Ulster, as he described it. And he said, the British Empire... And all it stands for is the sun and air of our existence. British civilization is the very breath of our life and our resolve to maintain within the United Kingdom is unshakable. Whilst there is breath left in us, we will fight to maintain the Union Jack over Ulster. We will never surrender our citizenship in the British Empire. We, for our part, would never surrender our citizenship in the great empire to which we are so proud to belong. For the narrow isolation of a Gaelic Republic shut away from the world... Our destiny lies in the United Kingdom and the Empire, and no one could take this or inalienable right away from us. Now, there's lots of high flights of rhetoric in that. That that um, speaks to the age in which it was um, uttered. But what what really struck me about that was that so much of what is mentioned there by him as the reasons for his unionism and the unionism of the people who were voting for him have completely faded um, and gone completely from our um, our situation today. So obviously there is no longer an Irish Republic, which is some impoverished um, church-dominated state. The Irish Republic is not a simple Gaelic state as it was then. It's a very multicultural society. The internal makeup of Northern Ireland has been completely transformed and you go on and on and on. Circumstances are just utterly different. And yet the sort of resolve that you hear in that from him to maintain the union is exactly the sort of resolve you hear from unionists today. So how how do you explain the fact that that resolve is unchanged and yet the reasons that he set out for his resolve back then have completely gone? Well, I think that the resolve comes from the principles from the uh, Solemn League and Covenant. And uh, as a covenanting unionist in that sense, 
uh, Craig believed, obviously, in the connection between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Uh, it was a compromise. I mean, Northern Ireland was born out of a compromise. It was uh, a failure, as Gordon Lucy has written in relation to Carson. Carson wanted to keep Ireland within the UK. If that was no longer possible. And the conflict management sort of device, if you like, was partition, um, or at least the, uh, you know, the Government of Ireland Act and the, the, the idea that two Irelands would come together at some point in the future. But unionists had carved out a very important niche for themselves um, by contributing uh, so so much to the um, the efforts in the First World War. And I suppose that quote comes from the eve of the Second World War when we actually see, um, you know, uh, a lot of things challenged. Um, but one thing that, that sticks uh, in my mind about that period, that interwar period, is just how, um, you know, the pillars uh, upon which and the principles upon which uh, unionists believed that their um, their connection with Great Britain rested. The economic uh, pillar, for instance, uh, the connection with the empire, okay. Um, it was uh, on the slide certainly by 1943 onwards uh, and definitely by the end of the Second World War um, because the UK was exhausted by them financially. Uh, but I, I think also the social solidarity, the sort of uh, unionism that people feel in their blood and in their bones. And I do, uh, there is a quote at the beginning of the book talking about how loyalists particularly saw themselves as a people, uh, a people who could stand up and fight for the UK, even if the UK didn't want them. So there is a bit of a paradox in there that they are staunch. They are uh, prepared to stand up and fight for, uh, you, you know, what they believe in but I think it's very uh, it's, it's also very selfish in a sense and this is something I'm trying to communicate not just in the book but in my other writing that uh, really what they see there is a very narrow understanding of the people uh, um, that they're sticking up for. They don't see it in UK way terms necessarily. They see it as a contract, a contract between between them um, and uh, and London and uh, and Parliament particularly uh, and uh, King in Parliament. So as as it was then and now. So I guess that it's a contractual conditional loyalty uh, and that very much still remains the case I mean a key word in the quote that you read out there is citizenship and uh, equal citizenship of course it's a fundamental basis of the covenant uh, and later on it becomes a really divisive political issue here under the old Stormont uh, government uh, and beyond and today it is seen as probably the, the key issue in, in debate and discussion around the Northern Ireland Protocol and in those years after 1921, there are in some ways two things going on. There's this extraordinary achievement. Forget whether any of us think it's a good idea to partition the island. Once it's happened, it's a reality. And the people who are tasked with creating this new state essentially from scratch um, are um, incredibly successful in many ways at doing that. They build a parliament and um, they build a court system. They build a whole bureaucracy, which hadn't been there. And um, all these basic elements of, of, a, of, a, of a functioning government are created from scratch. But there's also this profound flaw, many profound flaws in, in some ways at its, at its heart from the outset. And some of those flaws start to emerge in the Second World War. And there was one element of the book, which again, I hadn't realised. So it, it's, it's widely known that there was this serious problem during the Blitz where uh, the ageing Prime Minister, John Miller Andrews, is deposed basically because the, there has been such a level of, of really crass ineptitude responding to the Blitz. People are angry. They're, they're, they're really demanding um, some, some very significant answers to their questions around what, what, what has happened and the mass loss of life there. 
there uh, and there are wider social problems. But something that you point out here is that Northern Ireland's response to the war effort was actually far less impressive than a lot of people now like to think. So there is a simple narrative that the Irish Republic stayed neutral and they weren't involved and that's to their shame, lots of people would say, given what we now know about what what Hitler was up to. Uh, But that by contrast to that, Northern Ireland stood proudly and fought and people went off and died. And obviously that happened. But you're making the point here that actually the numbers in terms of voluntary recruitment were quite unimpressive. And even the industrial output was quite unimpressive in some way. So can, can you maybe talk through what that means and why those things weren't quite as impressive as maybe the folklore now um, has them to be? Yeah, so the the statistics, I'm not sure of the exact statistics. Uh, it's Obviously, they're in, in the book, but uh, around about 49,000 people from Northern Ireland volunteered in the Second World War and about 50,000, 51,000 from, uh, from the South. So, uh, you know, that's surprising, I think, looking back, but there's very good scholarship that's been uh, done on this over the past few years uh, and, uh, and really... What that says, I think, politically is that the unionist government uh, need a bigger bargaining chip. So for them, the uh, the need to increase production, war production, was essential. Uh, um, but they were always fighting a rear guard action. And the reason they were fighting a rear guard action is, believe it or not, that uh, the trade union movement was one of the most militant in the whole of Europe. And uh, and simply they would uh, go on strike. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was as much about wages as it was about producing guns and patriotism and what we might see in that nostalgia-filled, uh, you know, hindsight. So I think that... Uh, Basil Brook, who comes in and replaces uh, John Miller Andrews, really is saying to people, it's quite embarrassing, I think, for uh, Brook personally, because, of course, then his his relative, who is the chief of the Imperial General Staff, um, Sir Alan Brook, uh, you, you know, uh, they, uh, you know, it must have been quite an interesting conversation, especially when you could see that for uh, the Unionist government, the whole basis of their argument about Northern Ireland being uh, ripe for um, investment, if you like, and, and, and fair shares and access to uh, the markets uh, that the rest of the UK could, could have access to hinged upon them, um, you know, being fully in the war. And of course, the old cliche was that Northern Ireland was only half in the war in that sense. Northern Ireland was fully in the war in terms of the impact of the Luftwaffe and, and the uh, destruction that they were wrought, that they wrought over Belfast. So, I mean, there's a, no doubt in my mind. I mean, I'm looking at this, I suppose, objectively as a historian, but I think personally, I grew up with those stories about the Belfast Blitz. I mean, my grandparents were bombed out of their homes and went off to the countryside. The Second World War is crucial, I think, for, um, and it's the same in Great Britain, uh, mobilising labour opposition to um, to the, the current government and uh, we do see at the end of the Second World War the election of two Northern Ireland Labour Party MPs for industrial areas affected by um, by the war. Uh, so that's the political outworking, if you like, of, of, of that. And once we get to the end of the Second World War in 1945, there's this possibility of real change. And it's one of the the real tragedies, I suppose, of the story of Northern Ireland, that that doesn't happen. There's this opportunity, this window for change. And I think that we in our generation can identify with this to a certain extent through the pandemic. It's not to the same extent as the as the Second World War, but there's this massive rupture in society. And once it ends, some things just never go back to being the way that they were before it. 
But Brookborough didn't want that. He was an old school unionist, a traditional rural Fermanagh unionist, and he wanted to basically recreate as much of the old order as he could. Parts of it were impossible to recreate and parts of it were made impossible to recreate by obviously what Clement Attlee was doing, the National Health Service, wider social security in Britain, which was being pushed towards Stormont and for various reasons they felt they had to go along with. Uh, but what what is the significance of Brookborough as a as a person making those decisions? Was he personally um, making those decisions in a way that was in any way contrary to wider unionist sentiment? Was there a possibility that a different, like if a Terence O'Neill had been there at that point, or a Faulkner, it could have been different? Or was the wider mood of unionism that they wanted this return to the security, if you like, of the 1930s, where Northern Ireland had settled down as a, as a, as a society, it had been built, it had its institutions there, Stormont had been opened, and that was a, a more comforting um, memory, if you like, than it was for maybe people in England or other parts of the UK. Yeah, I mean, there was no kind of uh, consensus there, uh, you know, beyond uh, what Brookborough, who was a very eff- effective operator as Prime Minister, he had to be because his predecessor had fallen from power very quickly. Uh, and um, it was quite embarrassing, I think, for the Unionist Party that that uh, John Miller Andrews had not stayed uh, in power for longer. And in fact, uh, I cite one of the briefings to the uh, King's uh, private secretary, Tommy Lassells, uh, about, uh, you know, how the backbenches were restive. And I think the problem that Brookborough had was, on the one hand, he had the backbenches to try and assuage their concerns um, about growing militancy and amongst what they call socialists, or Northern Ireland Labour Party, uh, and independent uh, MPs. Because during the war, of course, uh, you, you know, the, there was a, a almost a gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't fight uh, elections on the same basis that they had before the war. But that was not adhered to by people like Harry Midgley uh, and uh, and others, an independent unionist who, who took, ironically, uh, Craig Avon's seat uh, after his death. So uh, there was a job of work to do. There was a big reorganisation that needed to be done within the uh, unionist party. And I think Brookborough had to then, you know, deal with the criticism from within his party. Uh, he's very good at that, but also from outside. Uh, and I think that the criticism outside really can be captured in the 50s and 60s uh, by the slogan that the Northern Ireland Labour Party later used, which was British rights for British citizens. Brookborough did, he was dragging his feet and he wanted Northern Ireland to be different. Of course he did. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of contradictions there. So he appointed uh, in a far, far uh, thinking way, I, I guess, um, uh, one of the, the greatest sort of p- politicians of that era, um, uh uh, Dame Dara Parker, and she uh, was given responsibility for you know the the big house building scheme and so on. Uh, that then came later for the Homes for Heroes, upon which the Brookborough's kind of policy of prosperity and peace for Ulster rested. And uh, but you know he's always facing carping criticism from the Northern Ireland Labour Party that Northern Ireland is not like uh, the rest of uh, the UK, and uh, and and that's what. O'Neill, Terence O'Neill realises in the 1960s. Very different uh, styles of leadership there from both prime ministers. I think that Brookborough was a populist. He he pandered in, in many respects to, uh, you know, that sort of sectarian attitude um, or as he distinguished between those who were loyal to the unionist government and those who were disloyal. Uh, and, uh, and then O'Neill, who was more of the view that this really couldn't stand, that you had to, the, the sustainability of the union depended on reaching out 
and he did it in a very crass way. Uh, O'Neill, and he's remembered for that, but I think that nevertheless his anti-populist kind of stance uh, was where unionism was headed. And uh, incidentally, in the 60s, the Orange Order became much more of a liberal institution at the top. And I've, uh, thanks to access given to me by the Orange Order, I was able to look in the archives. And really what I was looking at was, well, you know, we're told in a lot of the histories of Northern Ireland that unionist parties basically controlled by the Orange Order. I didn't find that to be the case in the in the archival material that I looked at. Uh, quite the contrary. I think that they were quite... Um, susceptible to criticism, especially from the South, about um, how much Orange Order influence there was. And so when the ministers came into power, a good example in the mid-50s is Bill Craig. He he didn't respond in a populist way to, um, you know, uh, rural Orange men who, who were really consumed by political insecurity, especially with the backdrop of the border war, uh, the IRA's border campaign, Operation Harvest. So uh, I suppose in a way we're seeing in, in the 1960s is that agenda for trying to build a consensus within both communities. And in a sense, O'Neill steals the thunder of the Northern Ireland Labour Party that has been calling for British rights for British citizens. You've got a fascinating quote here from Sir George Clark, who was the Grand Master of the Orange Order in 1967. So this is what a couple of years before the troubles break out, things are starting to fall apart, uh, but but it, but it's not yet clear just how bad they are going to get. And he says, we find there is a growing tendency for people to regard the words civil and religious liberty as something which applies only to a section of the community who feel that for some reason liberty is to be enjoyed only by themselves and those who may be opposed to their particular ideals must be stopped from expressing their views no matter what the cost. Now, not many people would expect if you give them that quote to say that came from the leader of the Orange Order in the 1960s, um, let alone today. Isn't, isn't there this tension, this sort of enduring tension in unionism and particularly the orange strain of unionism between these ideals of civil and religious liberty for everyone, um, letting everybody practice their faith or, or their, their views according to their conscience and the reality of this darker sectarian bent to elements of unionism which come to dominate at various points? Yes, and uh, I mean, for, for someone... Uh, like me to be a bit chippy around, you know, sort of, you know, the old unionist uh, state um, or unionist government uh, to discover that uh, you had, you know, liberal, almost progressive elements at the top of the organisation, I think, uh, you know, is, is something that should be read actively by people when they approach my book, because there are more examples of that. And uh, although it would be easy to paint the picture of the, the darker recesses, uh, uh, you know, some kind of uh, orange unionist cabal, uh, um, you know, carrying out kind of uh, you, you know, secret plans to gerrymander and discriminate and then to assassinate um, Catholics. The reality is that there is always a tension within that unionist party and the government. And what you find in the mid-60s, I've written extensively about this and interviewed many of the participants uh, of the pre-troubles, simply the, f the few years, uh, those few years in the mid-60s when the prospect of violence was very real, but it didn't break out until 69. And my understanding of it is that you have a small coterie of individuals who uh, stoke uh, the flames of sectarianism by recruiting people like Gusty Spencer into this, um, you know, so-called UVF. Uh, and there are others um, who are recruited in there. 
Uh, and that's really uh, done, you know, outside of governing structures. And and so that's what we really need to understand. I mean, O'Neill had no vested interest in either looking the other way or or even facilitating or enabling this because it, it led to his his fall. And in 69, he, he said then that he was literally blown out of office by the UVF. But nevertheless, there are people in the ranks of the Unionist Party who are very much of the populist belief, uh, you know, as with previous Prime Ministers that O'Neill was simply weak and that uh, something was required to undermine his rule and that something came very violently in the form of militant loyalism. And once once we get into the 1980s, the troubles have been going for years, but Irish unity is still no closer. So there's lots of fear because people are being killed, um, unionists, Protestants, members of the Orange Order, people who are voting for the Unionist Party or for the DUP at this point or for other unionists. Um, but there's no real prospect of Irish unity, despite the Anglo-Irish Agreement having given the Irish Republic a, a, a form of say on, on the internal affairs of Northern Ireland for the first time in its history, but only at, at, a, at a consultative level. So really quite a weak um, thing in a in a in 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 terms of the raw power of the thing. And there's this fascinating quote that you have, and this this is a quote from Jim Mullineau, the leader of the Austrian Unionist Party at this point, where he spoke to the author and academic Padraig O'Malley, uh, where he said in the 1980s, if 51% of the people of Northern Ireland in a free and open election opted for some form of unification, my party would have to accept it. Now, that really jumped out at me because what are we talking about today? Well, we've got people like Ian Paisley Jr. Um, trying to change the law to say that that should no longer be the basis for how a border poll should operate. Um, what what do you make about how unionism has has changed in the intervening period there? And obviously there are lots of unionists to accept. If they lose 50% plus one, they've lost and that's it and it's over. But there is this other view uh, coming to the fore, which is saying, actually, Trimble made a big mistake in 1998. So the thing that he presented and everybody thought on the unionist side was the one thing that was a positive, that the principle of consent had been accepted. And even Jerry Adams was accepting it in a, in a sort of grudging way. Now, suddenly that's seen as a defeat rather than a victory. How, how do you explain that, that, that sudden transformation? Uh, it's difficult to explain it. Uh, there are just so many different, um, you know, rabbit holes you could go down in relation to this. I think that the principle of consent, the meaning of that has changed over time. It's moved from the parliament to the people uh, and the people have changed as well. You know, no longer is there a, a majority, uh, you know, of Protestants, Unionists, whatever way you want to describe that community. And I think that what Trimble did was very brave in the sense that uh, because he realised that that inbuilt majority, if you want to call it that, you know, it's been disparagingly referred to that, uh, and the, the veto on consent, as Republicans would say it, uh, he knew that that couldn't last forever. And I think what he was trying to do, and in his Nobel Peace Prize speech, which I found to be a real source of, um, you know, sort of inspiration, almost even though I would uh, take issue with, um, you know, Trimble's conservatism with a small C. Uh, but I think that in there he's talking about fanatics and about changing the mindsets of people. And if you can't change their minds, then you exterminate them. It means quite, quite, um, you know, emphatic stuff. And um, so I think that what Trimble's trying to do is moderate unionism and, uh, and you know, to get them to accept that they have to work in power sharing structures uh, formally uh, with with um, 
non-unionists. And, uh, and so that, I, I suppose the principle of consent again has undergone a transformation through, in recent years, the lens of Brexit and the, the idea that, uh, you know, 51% is probably not a good idea <laughs> uh, or 50 plus one because um, it can lead to all sorts of long-term repercussions that might not even be uh, resolved within a generation. So I think that uh, there, um, you know, there, there should, uh, you know, at least be caution. And I would say there should at least be caution for one major reason. And that is that this is a divided place, whatever way you want to skin the cat, it is divided. And I think that, uh, you know, you, you have to try and bring everybody along with you. And, uh, and that's what Trimble foresaw, uh, in the nineties. I think he saw it much earlier. I mean, there, there's quite a lot of evidence cited in there that he was in regular contact with the Northern Ireland office. And he was in some ways uh, seen as a more moderate voice than than Molyneux. Uh, and uh, and actually, if you go on to quote the rest of what Molyneux says there from part uh, O'Malley's work, uh, he he also talks about that uh, the shadow of the gunmen, uh, the loyalist paramilitaries, that they wouldn't have any control or influence over them. And uh, and you know, obviously that that was the case. Uh, so I think that that's the other thing in the mix here, that how would loyalists respond, those who have more militant mindsets and aren't prepared to see sovereignty being shared uh, amongst everyone here. It, to them, it's the Ulster people and the Ulster people are, are Protestant and loyalist and sovereignty rests with them. And I think that's where we are today. Different conflicting views on what sovereignty means uh, in a divided society and you know, that's that's a conclusion I come to at the end of the book, that uh, the years of the Good Friday Agreement and the negotiations of what unionism was trying, political unionism, uh, until uh, in the form of the UUP was trying to get across uh, and it has found, a, a, a continues to find a home in, under Doug Beattie's leadership, is much more moderate, much more compromising. Some would say that perhaps too compromising. Um, but nevertheless, that's the future to maintain peace and stability in this part of the world, I believe. And one of the overarching themes of your book, I think it's fair to say, is that there is a much greater diversity within unionism than either the old Unionist Party or now the DUP and the Ulster Unionist Party um, have come to represent that they have been much more conservative. Um, they have in some ways held unionism back if if it, that's not a an unfair way to um, set it out. And that there has been this suppression of other voices within unionism. And you've you've written extensively about the UVF, about the PUP, about loyalist political parties, etc. And you make the point in this book that the PUP was obviously a left wing, and I'm actually saying was in the sense that it still does exist, but it's almost gone, um, was a left wing unionist party. It had a very liberal social agenda. It was quite radical economically. Yet the irony here, as you identify it, is that people like Billy Mitchell, David Irvine had helped destroy liberal unionism in the 1960s and 1970s. So what what changed their mind? Was it that they always had these particular ideas, but the union was so to the forefront of their mind that they thought it was under threat and they set those aside for a time? Or did they change their minds? 
I think they changed their minds and the, the person who cha- helped change their minds was Gusty Spence. And in the, in the mid-1990s, he gave a speech to the PUP annual conference in which he said that the old unionist government had sullied the good name, the noble name of unionism. And I think that that's a conclusion they came to. Now, they came to that conclusion on the basis of A, the old unionist government and elements of that had recruited Spence. Of course, he would say that. And he, he continued to maintain that in the, the last years of his life when I knew him. Um, um, but also because they saw the dangers um, that they they saw the dangers, uh, and uh, and it was very much uh, the uh, the danger of the of populism on the streets, um, and that was represented by Ian Paisley and the DUP. So they became you know arch critics of the DUP and the DUP arch critics of them. So there was no love lost there. But I think that the challenges that they faced uh, were in trying to moderate. Um, the mindsets of people who have become involved in loyalist paramilitary groups, particularly the UVF and Red Hand Commando, although the the, Ir- the Irvines uh, and uh, uh, and the uh, and the Spences and the Mitchells had you know uh, you you know they had opposite numbers in the UDP, Gary McMichael and, and David Adams, for instance. So, but they faced a real job of work, and that was that. Um, their constituency voted for the DUP if they voted at all. And uh, so it was a, a, an ever-present uh, battle between them about, you know, saying that we must be much more moderate. We m- need to be moderate because we need to secure the union. The best way of securing the union is to reach out and convince people who are floating voters or, or not, um, you know, minded to, uh, to to vote one way or the other, that to secure the union was for them, it was essential, but to secure the interest and material well-being of people in marginalised and depraved areas was tantamount to, you know, that gave them essentially their um, political objective next to securing the union. And that became very, very controversial in loyalist areas. I mean, the, the voices that we hear today and the influence that we hear within Ulster loyalism are the complete reverse of that and actually we we hear people today who are very critical of the DUP so even the DUP aren't um, escaping on on scales despite being the um, the, the dominant unionist party uh, so the I think that the PUP and those loyalist parties they were symptomatic of the context of the time so what I mean by that is that there was compromise in the air people could smell the hope they could touch it and for me you know doing some practical peace building work and uh, conflict transformation work on the ground in the early 2000s uh, you know and into the mid 2000s you could really have an honest uh, conversation with people from, um, you know, across the divide. And the PUP tried their, their best to uh, to bolster that. Um, but I, I think that the uh, the forces really of, um, you know, uncompromising unionism became too dominant and uh, destroyed them. Ultimately, I don't see the Progressive Unionist Party as being progressive today. Uh, and it, unfortunately, it's a, it's a sorry story about how it got there. But I, nevertheless, I think it reflects a sea change where, you know, those marginalised and depraved areas are today. One of the things that you identify as central to the demise of the PUP is the flag protests of just over a decade ago. And they led to an influx of members at the time, but a very different type of member, people who were much more right wing and much more uncompromising in their politics. And there's there's a line in the book where you say, 
that after the flag protests began and really took off and there was this middle class and business oriented backlash to the fact that Belfast was basically locked down at night. Restaurants were closed. It was it was it was a very grim period for people who had businesses there, or people who wanted to go out into the city. Um, and you say, curiously, unionist politicians found the protests to be little more than an embarrassment despite having wound up those who were now on the streets by distributing leaflets warning of the dire consequences of limiting the number of days the council could fly the union flag. That was Belfast City Council, which had chosen to restrict the number of days that the flag was flying. And I, it, it, it brought to mind a meeting that I had in a coffee shop with two DUP members, one of whom is now dead, one of whom is very senior in the party, prior to the flag protests. And I was a political editor at the newsletter and they thought that I would be very interested in this story. And it was that they thought they had alliance over a barrel. They had this really clever idea that they were going to um, really hammer them on. uh, And I just, I, I, I don't remember exactly all of what they said, but I remember the sentiment of the meeting. They were cock-a-hoop. And yet what you said out here is how quickly that turned around and this thing that they had unleashed, they couldn't control. So within unionist politics at various points, paramilitarism, uh, militancy, however you want to describe it, has been unleashed at various points. Uh, sometimes with the connivance of the unionist leadership, sometimes as with O'Neill, uh, through people who want to bring down the the, uh, the uh, then leader of unionism. How dangerous is that in our future? Is loyalism this thing? Uh, and lo- I'm, I'm talking about loyalism in its um, in its militant sense. There are lots of loyalists, obviously, who are not paramilitaries and don't have any support for that. But in its militant sense, how dangerous is that? Is it something that unionist politicians understand? Um, and can they really control it? Uh, no. Uh, the genie is out of the bottle. And, uh, you know, there have been attempts to put that genie back in the bottle. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go into uh, detail on that, but uh, I think that um, what we've seen around the flag protests and then uh, in April 21, uh, you know, spontaneous violence is not controlled, perhaps, or even wound up in the way that it used to be, even if it is partially wound up uh, through the actions of uh, those in political leadership, they can't control it. And uh, now that's not to say that attempts have been made to, you know, and genuine attempts to try and control it and stop it. And I think that's that that's responsible. But I think that uh, these malign uh, non-state actors, and I'm stepping into my kind of day job um, role and talking about them, are uh, completely unpredictable, completely uncontrollable, and they are not driven by uh, covenant-based uh, unionism, the principles of loyalism or anything else. They're driven by making money. And uh, so politics is a subsidiary uh, sport for them. And uh, But unfortunately, we haven't fully understood how the security situation has been transformed since the 1990s uh, and uh, and so I think that you know one of the things I've been trying to do uh, in recent years is to to really highlight how it is a, a much more insidious threat and problem and the uh, the major challenge from loyalist paramilitaries today is actually for their own communities uh, I mean I was up in Derry London Derry there yesterday and hearing how paramilitaries control small areas like you know they have an influence in places like the fountain and it's an incredibly small place and, uh, you know, and coercive control, unfortunately, is something that I don't think uh, unionist politicians really fully understand. And uh, what paramilitaries, and at least some of the paramilitaries I've encountered over uh, the years, have uh, tried to do is 
is essentially um, uh, align themselves with political parties. Uh, and um, even though those political parties would not want them anywhere near the place. Uh, and uh, so they can, in some ways, feed um, their worldview in there. And I think that that hardens uh, the position of political parties. So I think we're seeing that around Northern Ireland Protocol. And uh, so you can see them almost as independent actors in some ways, uh, more than the creatures of political unionism, as they've often been seen. There's a there's a fascinating and really quite dark, I think, quote in this from a senior police officer after the flag protests. Um, you're speaking to him, I think, sometime after the events. But the first anniversary of the flag protests was seen as a potential flashpoint. And the police were worried about this and they were they were probably right to be worried about this. And he said that they basically shifted their uh, their methods from trying to tackle paramilitary ideology to getting them on their petty crime, essentially, and quite serious organised crime in some instances. So he says, for instance, um, no, we will get them for their criminal activities. We targeted their drugs. We found some of them involved in some very unsavoury things. We got them for dog fights. The other thing we did was we did a massive licensing review across the city because we knew they were running illegal clubs. These clubs were feeding them cash. So we cancelled lots of licenses. That was to reduce the money. Now, coming out of that, we also did the whole stop and search. We put specialist teams in. We didn't actually get many arrests, but we completely crumpled their ability to make money. And that was one of their big methodologies. And then he says, and it was impressed upon them that this would continue to be the case all the way until we got through the anniversary of the flags protest. Now, maybe maybe it's the journalist in me, but what I took out of that was that that's an astonishing thing for a police officer to have said. Because what he's saying here is that they know that this crime is happening. They turn it on and off like a tap. They uh, say to these people, if you do what we want you to do, we'll go easy on you. If you don't, we'll crack down on you. Does that not embed these paramilitary organisations, crime organisations in their communities in perpetuity if they're never actually tackled by the police in a, in a straightforward way rather than thinking about the political purpose of uh, trying to stop a particular protest? You know, just look at the size of the police uh, compared to the paramilitary groups. I mean, if, if some of the reporting is to be believed, there are over 10,000 paramilitaries in Northern Ireland and uh, that they are quite powerful. As I say, they're independent actors in the sense that they're part of the fabric of this place, whether we like it or not. And because of the failure, the utter complete dismal failure to uh, to completely disarm these groups, dismantle them uh, and to reintegrate the people who were in there. These paramilitary groups are much bigger than they were in the 1990s and I think that that's a, that's a failure on all of us and I take responsibility for my failure to not convince them in the early 2000s working alongside Billy Mitchell, David Irvine, Don Purvis, John Kyle and others to, to, to leave their communities alone. They had, in their minds, they had won their war, they had maintained the union and they continued, continued to resist full decommissioning uh, and cores of control, abandoning cores of control. So they are part and parcel of the fabric, despite, you know, some tactics that are being used to remove them. There are uh, raids uh, hitting their drugs empires every single day and uh, they're still there. And it's not just drugs, as I've said. They're, you know, in a way I've characterised them as dark networks, as academics would see them. They're a blend uh, almost of, uh, as I've said, economically 
Uh, they are motivated about making money, like any sort of mafia type organization. But they have a political, uh, a, a, a political uh, connection to this place and the context that makes them uh, a ready first port of call for people within their own communities, which is the saddest thing, uh, and allows them and enables them to um, extend that reach uh, and uh, that course of control. And I think that you know we really. We know we we need to move past that, um, but I'm just seeing things from the point of view of people on the ground um, in these marginalised and disadvantaged areas where I'm from and where I don't see much in the way of a success story as far as uh, the the peace process is concerned. It's very sad indeed as someone who's you know is supportive of the Good Friday Agreement and believes very much that the the future mapped out there 25 years ago was one that everybody could rejoice in and and move forward on a positive basis. But we've left a lot of people behind um, in those areas, and that's what gives them real strength and purpose, um, a unity of effort in some cases. I mean, paramilitary groups, you know, operate with impunity in certain places. And, um, you know, until, until they're fully dismantled, until we persuade them that they need to go away and that the community really um, rejects and throws off those, uh, y- you know, those structures, uh, we won't really get a resolution to this. One of the things which makes this book very readable is that it is not unsympathetic to unionism at all, but it's very critical of it in many of its guises. Looking into the future, 50 years from now, where will unionism be? Well, there is an opportunity now to redefine unionism uh, and that unionism has to be redefined on the basis of it must, overwhelmingly, it must, unionists must uh, put uh, everyone in this place first. Uh, And that means defining the community, redefining the community as meaning uh, those who come from a Protestant loyalist or you know unionist, Ulster unionist background, and um, but also those who who may be uh, you, you know not uh, exactly enamoured by living um, within the United Kingdom and persuading them that the UK can work and uh, that the union can work for them. So I think that uh, a dynamic future that talks about um, how the union can work for everyone, and that's everyone in Northern Ireland but across these islands I think is where unionism needs to be headed but 50 years time who knows I mean we're told that uh, a border poll could come soon Um, I would say that there is not enough work that has been done on that about the ramifications of it I've pointed out some of the some of the real strategic questions that need to be answered for example uh, this place is not united um, as it stands within uh, a United Kingdom. Uh, so those real uh, and meaningful divisions between communities and within communities need to be resolved. Otherwise, how on earth are they going to be uh, united in a united Ireland? So I think that there are real important strategic questions uh but whether they, they come in the form of a border poll sooner rather than later, that's an entirely uh, political choice uh, that people will make for themselves who are in positions of authority. But for me, I'd like to think that um, there would be no change in terms of the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. But I think that it definitely does need to work for the greater number of people. Uh, and that's the, the message in the book um, that I'm hoping to convey. Aaron Edwards, thank you very much. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. 
For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.